Well, we are finishing off a sermon series that's been going for 11 weeks. So this is, I don't, we don't usually do sermon series that, la that last this long, but we've been going through what's popularly known as the Ten Commandments, what the Bible describes as the Decalogue. And it's 10 words. Now, the context of these words is that God was freeing his people from Egypt, which is a land of slavery. They were enslaved to the Egyptians. God sets them free, and he gives them 10 words to help establish their freedom. So these are words, you know, you hear 10 commandments, and you go, wow, this is 10 heavy obligations. No, these are 10 ways that God says, if you do these things, you'll be able to experience lasting freedom and joy and liberty. So we are on the last of those, uh, of those words, and it's recorded in Exodus 20, verse 17. Here's what it says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your, covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey. Donkeys are really hard for me not to covet. Just be honest with you. Um, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So here's the modern paraphrase. You shall not crave your neighbor's mansion, attractive spouse, well-behaved children, luxury SUV, seven-figure income, cool friends, trendy hairstyle, new phone, large inheritance, engaging personality, prestigious career, extravagant holiday, or self-indulgent sin. So don't do that. These are, uh, these are the things that, uh, that we might want. Now, what does covet mean? There's a few words that we can use as synonyms. One is to crave. If you had a craving for some kind of food, uh, you really long for something. It can be a lust, something that you fixated on and you really want to have for your own. It can mean an obsession. Lust typically isn't just a fleeting thought that goes through your mind. It's something that you dwell on, almost meditate on, and, uh, and you put lots of energy towards thinking about that. And it's something that we would possess for our own want. This is perhaps different than our own needs. It's just something that we want. And we, we aren't just interested in appreciating it, appreciating it. We want it for ourselves. It's not good enough that, that something is attractive or beautiful. I need to possess that for my own. Here's what a theologian says about this commandment. The 10th commandment thus functions as a kind of summary commandment, the violation of which is a first step that can lead to the violation of any or all of the rest of the commandments. As such, it is necessarily all-embracing and descriptive of an attitude rather than a deed. Uh, we said when we talked about the first commandment to not have any false gods, anybody competing for God being first in our hearts, that in order to uh, break the other commandments, we first need to break the first commandment. Once we deny him, then that leads us into all kinds of uh, other things that are not helpful for us or anyone else. Well, this is similar, that if we covet, that leads to lying, stealing, adultery, murder, all those kinds of things. Here's some biblical examples. I'll just say briefly, the first is in this context, when the people leaved, uh, left Egypt, they were in the, uh, in the wilderness, they craved 
the food of the Egyptians. He says, oh man, that we could go back and have something more than just manna, which means what is it? Or, or quail. Um, we see Ahab, King Ahab. If you ever hear any stories about him and his wife Jezebel, it's never good. And what Ahab wanted at one point was he wanted someone else's vineyard and he craved for it. And he became sullen and angry and depressed because he couldn't get what he wanted. David was attracted toward a woman named Bathsheba and he craved being with her. Amnon was attracted to his sister Tamar. And it's interesting in this story that it says that he, he lusted after her for a long time. He finally raped her. And then it says that he hated her as much as he once loved her. Isn't that interesting? That you finally get what you've wanted and it never quite delivers. And so you end up hating the very thing that you lusted after. Achan in Joshua 7.22, this is the story of when the people, the Israelites were finally moving into the promised land. They were told to capture Jericho, but not to take any of the spoil for themselves. Achan didn't listen to that. He took some shiny things. And here's how he described when he finally confessed his sin. This is how he described it. He said, I saw, then I coveted it in my heart, and then I took action and took it. This is what it looks like to covet. We see something shiny, something that's attractive to us. We dwell on it in our heart, and then we grab it for ourselves. Here's the, some of the problems with coveting. First of all, coveting is divisive. When we want something, it's often in competition with what someone else has, and so we fight over these things. It creates division. It's also full of jealousy. It's the inability to enjoy something. It's I want what you have more than what I have. When I think about this, I think that most uh, courtrooms are full of people with jealousy and coveting in their heart. I think if we got rid of coveting, we would get rid of most um, courtroom cases. It's dehumanizing. It takes uh, who someone else is and just makes them an object to possess instead of valuing them for who they really are. Even if it is an object, such as an ox or donkey, it's saying, no, it's, it's, I, it's, it's more about owning you than it is about valuing what that person or thing is. It's addicting. Lusts, in general, always over-promise and under-deliver. Anything that you've lusted after, odds are high, when you finally got what you lusted after, it wasn't quite what you imagined it to be. And so uh, coveting creates an addictive life. We're constantly grabbing for something that we don't have, trying to fill ourselves up with us, with it, but it never satisfies. It's ungrateful. What's interesting about coveting is that it makes us blind to what we already have. We... Uh, we're so enamored or fascinated with what's out there. We look at what we have and we go, that's it? This is all I got? Well, this isn't any good. And so it actually makes us ungrateful for the things that we do have. And finally, uh, coveting is actually a sign of laziness. Instead of uh, working for something, planning for something, being uh, uh, honoring something, we just want to grasp for it quickly and just possess it 
without actually deserving it. Proverbs 21, 25 to 26 says this, the craving of a sluggard, sluggard is somebody who's lazy, the craving of a sluggard will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. I just want stuff. I don't want to work for it. I just want stuff. All day long he craves for more, but the righteous give without sparing. So there's this idea that, uh, that coveting is kind of lazy. I just want, just, I just dream of the things that I could have and my mind is full of dreams instead of full of activity that actually might be able to accomplish something. So coveting always gets a bad rap in the Bible and for good reason as we've just explored. But here's the thing that's interesting when we think about desires or attractions. Not all desires are inherently evil. When we look at the other commands, it says, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not lie, uh, do not steal. It's just very, very short. What we hear, what we see in this command, you shall not covet, and then it gives you a list. Your neighbor's house, wife, male, female, servant, ox, donkey, anything that belongs to you. It spells it out. Why? Because not all desire is bad. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel as though Christianity is mostly about suppressing joy and all things that we would like. If it's good, it can't be, you know, if you like it, it can't be good. It just can't be good. And you almost have to not like it in order for God maybe to give it to you later or something. It's just, it, it's weird, right? But I think sometimes Christianity can be this way. Where we think that Christianity is more about desire suppression than actually the fulfillment of our desires. We can be suspicious of all desires. This is, a, uh, this is a popular quote, but it refers to the idea, it's by C.S. Lewis, it refers to the idea that God actually wants to increase our desires and not squelch them. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You know, I, I imagine the, this sluggard coveting and all they grab for is what's in their reach, you know? It's just if it's close by, easy to at least imagine getting, that's what I'll grab for. It's because it's what's familiar. And God comes and he says, you know, I, I have planned for you uh, going to a resort by the sea. And we go, I don't even know what that is. Why would I bother putting in any time or energy moving towards that when I can't even picture it? And so we just stay for what's carnal and basic and immediate and miss all that God would want to give us. My prayer as a community is that God would actually satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts, not frustrate them or steal away what he, uh, he wants to give us. So what then is the opposite of coveting? So we know that Grasping for something isn't good. We know that there are some desires that God actually wants to meet, or the, the real desires of our heart. 
How do we get there? What would be the opposite of living a life of coveting? Well, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, talks about that, but I want to read the whole paragraph because it's a fascinating paragraph. It says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, all those words are very helpful. We're going to talk about godliness, contentment, and here's the point. They actually bring great gain. God actually, by practicing these things, he wants to bring blessing and fruitfulness into our life. But here's the problem. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Well, I think we talked about this a number of commands ago, but um, where you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. There's, There's nothing that you can take with you. Actually, it's not true. There's three things that you can take with you. You can take faith, hope, and love. Uh, But anything that you can acquire with your hands, you can't take with you. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. We're going to talk about what this word content means in just a moment. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, do you want to get rich? Yeah, <laughs> someone is honest. <laughs> everyone else looks down. No, I think, I think the right answer is no, I don't. But I have everything crossed because really I do. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not every evil, but all, all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, I just think This is a description of Western society. I remember a long time ago, my mentor saying to me, again, I I hate talking about a long time ago because it wasn't even computers. But, uh, But he said, he says, you know that TV is a depressant. It's a depressant. Whatever you watch on TV, either it's the show that you're not living a life life nearly that exciting, or it's the commercial that tells you what you don't have. TV is a depressant. Social media is a depressant. If you want to get depressed, scroll through your feed. You go, wow, they're having fun. I've never had fun like that. I've never looked that good. I've never been with that backdrop. And it just goes on and on, doesn't it? How do they pull that off? What kind of job? I need a better job. It just goes, like, it's, uh, it's what happens. It's, uh, our society is built around coveting. We call it competition or capitalism. I think a better word is coveting. We want something more than what we have now because happiness is just around the corner, but I'm not experiencing it now. And, the, and the, what gets me from here to there is primarily money. Money is my primary problem according to a Western way of thinking. I'm sure that this is true all around the world, but I'm embarrassed to say that one of the things that the West has marketed around the world is a heart that covets. So let's look at these two words and then we'll conclude. The first was contentment is great gain. What does contentment mean? I don't know about you, but sometimes I think if I'm content, it's like, yeah, it's good. That's what I think of when I think of contentment. I don't think, wow, that, I go, yep, 
Yes, it was, wasn't bad. It was okay. I think a way to think of contentment is imagine your favorite meal. I don't know what that is, but imagine your favorite meal and you finish the meal and you go, that was so good. I am fully content. Content is being satisfied where you're actually, what you longed for was met. Contentment isn't making do. It's actually what you have is satisfying. This is a fascinating way to think. Roosevelt, President of the United States, said this, comparison is the thief of joy. The thief of joy. As soon as we compare ourselves to someone or something else, we immediately, our joy is stolen from us. We go, I don't have that. What if what we have now could be most satisfying, thoroughly satisfying? And maybe the temptation to get something shinier or newer or somehow better is actually stealing away our joy right now. Contentment is this ability to enjoy today and say this was good. So when it says, um, we, uh, for we have, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. It's not like I have some rags and a rice bowl and I guess that's good enough. No, it's being able to see these things filled with joy and gratitude and says, please, I couldn't have another bite. This is just perfect. Thank you so much. This is what's being talked about. This is the last command in, uh, in the Decalogue. And do you know what God's commanding us to do? He commands it. He says, I command you to enjoy today. I command you to enjoy your life. What a funny thing to say to somebody. But it's a command and the command is enjoy today. Because if you can't enjoy today, you'll never enjoy tomorrow. It's impossible. I think the devil's primary way to move us into coveting is to have us fixate on the future, on what could be. And if he can get us thinking about tomorrow, we'll never make full use and be content and satisfied with today. Today is always the most satisfying day. Come on, that's just logic. Tomorrow isn't satisfied because it didn't happen yet. Yesterday has some pain involved. Today can be a moment that can be satisfying. The key to joy is finding the presence of God in today. It's the key. And so God writes a command to highlight what steals away being able to find the life and presence of God in today. Are you okay with that? So what I want you to do is I want to think about your day. Think about your spouse, your children that you want to trade in for a newer model. The car that you're driving, that you just got a, you know, you just got a bill because 
you know, something else went wrong. Um, the job that you're in, the place that you're staying, that the, that the water runs cold if somebody flushes the toilet. That you think about that, that's your, that's your life. Welcome to your life. And there's nothing in that that could steal away your joy except coveting. Isn't that interesting? Who your spouse is, who your children are, what your job, they can't steal away your joy unless you covet for someone or something else. And the key to walk in life and freedom is to be able to look at where you are now and say, I couldn't have another bite. This is just so good. I'm so blessed. Please, that's enough already. There is a spiritual discipline that defeats coveting by receiving today. You listen to people uh, describe what their ultimate career will be. Always involves more money, always involves them being able to do the things they like to do as opposed to things they don't like to do. Usually involves having a much better boss. Ultimately, probably you're your boss. I think that's where people typically want to go with all that. <clears throat> There's no job tomorrow that can be as good as the one you have today. Because today, if you figure out how your work is meaningful today, then when you do get that promotion, when you do get a better boss, when you do, then you'll, be, you'll know how to enjoy that too. But you won't know how to enjoy that unless you can figure out how to enjoy today. Isn't that fascinating? This is liberating to me. I finally get to enjoy something instead of plan to enjoy something. I mostly plan to enjoy things. And God comes and says, no, I don't want you to plan to enjoy. I want you to enjoy. And the key to that is to say no to coveting. And then it says, so it says godliness with contentment. We looked at contentment, which is always about today. Always about what we have, not what we wish that we would have. And then it says godliness. What does godliness mean? Well, it simply means practical devotion to God. If you're a godly person, you're practically devoted to God. I would like to, uh, to tell you something that I'm quite sure that well, maybe introduce yourself afterwards if you believe what I'm about to say. I barely believe what I'm about to say. What truly satisfies us is the worship of God. He is what satisfies the deepest longings of our heart. Now, a minute ago, well, you have to agree with it because it was really sweet worship. But day to day, what our hearts long for is not a new shiny thing. What our hearts long for is Jesus Christ. And to know him would fill the deepest longings of our heart. I think this is incredible. I've been in the church now for almost exactly 50 years. I have an observation after 50 years. I think 
most of us, see Jesus as a resource. Jesus isn't satisfying, but what Jesus can give me will be. Jesus, give me that spouse that I've always dreamed of when I made a list when I was 13, as if we knew anything then. No offense to 13-year-olds. But give me, you know, give me that car. Give me, and don't worry, I'll, I'll be sure to tithe because I'm, I'm not greedy or anything. But when I hear people describe the abundant Christian life, I hear people describe what they want that Jesus will give them, not Jesus himself. And I have been on a journey for 50 years to actually long for Jesus and to find my hope and satisfaction in him. And this is the journey that has not disappointed. Running after every other thing that I would covet after, even to pray for, does not compare to knowing Christ. Now, this is a hard sell. You've just been told that somebody you can't see can't touch, hasn't probably ever spoken audibly to you. If he has, come see me. That'd be fun to hear about. Uh, hasn't spoken audibly to you. You've never gone out for a walk with, like, that person is what gives you the greatest satisfaction of all things. You know, can I hear an amen? It's like, okay. Okay, I believe that in faith. <clears throat> Not contentment, but maybe tomorrow I might experience that. Psalm 42, 2 says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Now, when I read that verse, I think David is special. I think David wrote this, and so David goes, my heart thirsts for God. My, I just long for God. I go, I wish I was like you. I don't think that's what's being said. I think that's being said about every single one of us in this room. Our hearts do thirst for God. We just can't tell it sometimes. I think our hearts long for God. Everything in us longs to be known, filled with his presence, walking with him. The deepest desires of our heart are met in a relationship with the living God. Our hearts do long for God. And the only thing that steals that away is, guess what? Coveting. Some other imaginary experience that we hope to someday have that'll tip us over the edge so that we're really like God and enjoy him. Matthew 13, 45 describes this. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The most precious thing in the world is to know the living God. A friend of mine is a pastor, so that's cheating. I'll just say that right off the bat. A friend of mine is a pastor, and, he, and so pastors get flexible schedules. And so that's, uh, maybe this can't apply to you. But he was telling me the last time I saw him, a couple months ago, he says, uh, he says, this is what I do now. He says, when I have my morning devotions, I don't leave that moment until I sense the presence of God. 
I take as long as is necessary. Because what my heart does long for is the presence of the living God. And so I wait to know that I know him and that he knows me and that we've connected in that moment. I thought that was luxurious, luxurious and I thought it was beautiful. There's somebody who understands what's of greatest value and it's to know God, to be known by him. How is coveting defeated and conquered? Right worship heals the soul of false worship. You see, uh, this, what we already have talked about, this whole idea of desire suppression will never cure coveting. You just, I just won't be attracted. I just, I just won't look, won't taste, don't touch. I just, I'll just, I'll just think boring gray thoughts. No color. Oh, I've had another victorious day. No, you haven't. What defeats coveting is full color experience of Jesus. Not suppressing something, receiving what he longs to give. Can I please encourage you? If you struggle with coveting, it just means that your heart is longing. And God wants to meet those needs in him because it's what our heart ultimately longs for. What this means then is that the first commandment is the remedy to, cover, to coveting. These are the brackets of all the commands to worship Jesus in him alone. Now again, we're, we're, we'll conclude now. But this is, this is still frustrating. We go, oh, great. Okay, don't covet, point one. Um, God wants to fill our desires, not just suppress them, super good. Uh, next point, God wants to be that fulfillment because he is. Okay, great. I'm still stuck with getting there. How do I actually get there? Godliness, we described as practical devotion to God. What I'd like to highlight then in closing is the idea of practical. Let me just put on a psychological hat just for a moment because it'll really help explain this point. In psychology, we talk about three primary um, characteristics that make us up, you know, kind of psychologically speaking. We have thoughts, we have feelings, and we have behaviors. We're head, heart, and hands, all right? That's kind of really basic. Now, uh, uh, the one of those three that can't be changed is feelings. Feelings are always the symptom of what we think or do. So you can't directly change a feeling. You have to change a thought or a behavior and that changes the feeling. Are you with me so far? Now, I was reading a book uh, this week by a friend of mine. He played in the NBA. His name is Keith Towers, Keith Tower. And uh, if you get him talking, he'll talk about playing against Michael Jordan. That's a little fun. 
And he talked about uh, guarding him. He's really tall. And uh, he talked about... Anyways, it's fun. Well, he wrote a book on mental health uh, for spiritual people. How do we find mental health as people who believe in Jesus? And he said something that I'd never heard before. And it's this. That our head, heart, and hands, our thinking, feeling, and behaving want to be in harmony with one another. It's, it's what is in our soul is we want what we think and feel and do to all be working together really well. We don't want to have feelings that are, that are dark and then happy thoughts. No, we want it all working together. If you've seen people who, uh, who are struggling mentally, they, those three things don't line up well. Their behavior isn't lining up well with what they feel or think. It's out of whack. And so there's something in our soul that wants all of that to work together. Now, at any given point in time, one of those three is in charge. And, and the other two are following it. We can follow our feelings and then our actions and thoughts try to support that feeling because they want to be in harmony with the feeling. So if we have a dark, coveting feeling, we say, I don't feel fulfilled today. Today is a dark day. Thoughts come along and say, I can help with that. Here's how today is horrible. And then uh, behavior comes along and says, yeah, just do this and this and this, and that'll confirm exactly what you feel. Because they're trying to work together. They're always working together. So we know kind of Christianity 101, that feelings are never good at leading. Never take leadership from a feeling. It's not going to take you typically into very good places. If you're in church, you typically hear that we want to take our cues from our thoughts and we try to have Bible thoughts and get our feelings so that our feelings and actions line up with what the Bible says. Super good. What I'd like to present to you this morning is that there's another way that's, dare I say, equally powerful that can transform our coveting feelings and it's our actions. Worship actions can change coveting feelings. As we act on right worship, we do things that are are practically doing things that are worshiping God, our feelings and our thoughts can catch up with that. Actions can lead our life, not just our thoughts. This is fascinating and incredibly empowering. Let me give an example. Where do you feel disappointed right now? Is it in your job, looking at your bank account, uh, um, uh, having, a, having a difficult relationship. Where do you feel disappointed? Where do you wish that it was different? Or what are you lusting after? What kind of car are you saving up for? What kind of degree do you think if you got that degree then you would finally be happy? Happy. 
In that place, God invites us to lead that moment with a new act of worship. In that moment, act as if God is good and great and in control of that place. Act like that. And as we act like he is good, this moment I can be content in because of who he is, as we act that way, our feelings and thoughts harmonize with that action. Isn't that powerful? It's possible to change feelings and thoughts simply by practicing different kinds of behavior. This is so concrete, I find it so encouraging. Um, I'll, I'll give one example and then I'll wrap up. I think of the irony of it. Think of, uh, think of having a difficult marriage. So we go, oh, I'm not getting along with my spouse at all. It's, it's really, really hard. And, uh, and it's easy for me to covet other people's spouses. I've watched, and they're always smiling, especially on Instagram. So for sure they have a better marriage than me. And so I, I look at that and I covet. Now, uh, I have a feeling that says that my spouse is inadequate for me to feel happy. That's how I feel. And then if I act on that, I'm going to spend less and less time with my spouse. That action is going to solidify a discontent, dissatisfied heart. The thing that gets you out of that dissatisfaction is a, is a worshiping action, which means that God wants me to move toward my spouse, not away. And if in this moment of all of my emotions are screaming to pull back and fantasize, covet, in this moment instead, if I actually, by faith, because I believe in Jesus, take a step toward my spouse, that action has the power to change my feelings and thinking. If you and I struggle to believe that God is good, it's ridiculous to think that he will become good by spending less time with him. It's ridiculous. The only way you and I are gonna experience a life with God would be the same as with us, we spend more time. We don't assume that he's unattractive. We assume I just haven't gotten to know him well enough yet. The power of godliness is taking concrete steps toward other people, toward God, that are the kind of steps that he would want us to take, godliness, that he would want us to take and this is our deliverance from coveting. So practical. So God, in the, in the closing of this series, God gives a very uh, simple request. Practically move toward me and what I would do in any given moment and watch where those actions will take you.
Just watch where they'll take you. In any given moment, be godly. Not gritting your teeth godly. Godly meaning I'm, I know that I can be satisfied today. I know that today is a good day. And so I'm going to act. I'm going to walk in godliness. And I think we're going to be overwhelmed with his goodness today that will make coveting seem like what it really is. And that's an illusion that is designed by Satan to steal away our joy. So we're going to, uh, we're going to worship again. Uh, and so you can stand up, that's an action. You can open your mouth and sing, that's an action. You can pray. Let's practice doing things that we may not even want to do, but we do them in faith, trusting that our feelings and our thinking will want to harmonize with those moments of obedience. So if you would like, could we please stand together and I'd love to pray. God, thank you for telling us about how disappointing coveting is. Thank you for telling us that. Because I, for one, have chased after all kinds of things only to be disappointed time and again. Thank you that you are the one who satisfies our soul. But thank you that you've given us a means to experience that to be true today. So I ask on behalf of my friends that we would commit ourselves to a life of godliness, to a life of doing the things that you would want us to do, trusting that they will lead the way for our emotions and thoughts to align. Oh, Father, we want to experience the life that is only found in you. We want you to be the pearl of great price. We want you to be the one who defines our emotional well-being. Thank you that we're not disembodied spirits, but that you've given us bodies to move towards that. And so we decide today take steps of godliness, practically moving toward the worship of you. Thank you, Jesus.